And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. David Marinus is, without question, one of the great storytellers of our time. He's written amazing books about uh, Bill Clinton, probably the best bio of Bill Clinton ever written, uh, about the young Barack Obama, about Vietnam, about the 1960 Olympics, uh, about a whole range of things, bringing them all to life with incredible stories and great insights. Now he's written this book about Detroit. In this book, Marinus covers the explosion of Motown music, uh, the uh, hinge of history in the civil rights movement, uh, the state of organized labor back then uh, with portents of what would happen to the organized labor movement, of race relations in the country, uh, and of the political change that occurred uh, with the uh, death of uh, John F. Kennedy. It is an amazing uh, confluence of historical events in one brief period in one American city. And uh, I had a chance to sit down with David to talk about that and uh, the politics of the day uh, in his role as associate editor of the Washington Post, and a great political reporter, and a whole bunch of other stuff. David Marinus, I thought I had done something uh, really prodigious when I wrote a book until I realized that you've written 11 mm-hmm. uh, uh, books about uh, uh, both Bill Clinton, maybe the definitive biography of, of Bill Clinton, uh, Barack Obama, the, uh, Vince Lombardi, the 1960 Olympics, your Pulitzer Prize winning book on Vietnam. Now you've written a book about Detroit, and not just about Detroit, but Detroit during a 19-month period in the 1960s. Um, And you wrote in the author's notes that you got the idea watching a commercial. Uh, Explain that. I wasn't expecting to write a book on Detroit. Uh, It was in 2011. I was in New York City in a bar watching the Super Bowl of my Green Bay Packers uh, and very nervous about it. And at halftime, I looked up at the screen and saw a commercial in the freeway sign Detroit. And I started paying attention. And then I saw all of these iconic images of Detroit, the Joe Louis Fist downtown, the great heavyweight champion, the, the Diego Rivera mural of Detroit industry, this black sedan driving up a Woodward Avenue, the main thoroughfare. And Eminem in the car. I'm I'm too old to be an Eminem guy, but I loved the sort of hypnotic beat of that. And then he got out of the car and walked into the glorious Fox Theater, and there was a black gospel choir rising in song, and Eminem turned to the camera and said, this is the Motor City, and this is what we do. And unprovoked, I started choking up. I literally had a tear in my eye, and I You're from Detroit. We should explain that. Well, that's why. Yes, exactly. You weren't Uh, always a Packers fan. Uh... Well, I moved from Detroit when I was seven, so I got to to Wisconsin, to Madison, at about the time that Lombardi did, <laughs> and that was a glorious era. Um, but yes, no, so I started thinking about why did it hit me that way? It's because I was born in Detroit. My very earliest memories are of Detroit. 
of Werner's Ginger Ale and the Bob Lowe Boat and Hudson's Department Store. And and so then I start thinking, well, Detroit means a lot to me. I, you know, I'd sort of repressed that for a long time. Maybe what can I do? Well, I write. So maybe I'll write about it. Um, how will I write about it? You know, I, I wanted to write about what Detroit gave America. And that's how I started focusing in on how I would do that. Because book. one of the reasons those ads were so impactful is that people have pretty much or had pretty much written off Detroit. Detroit mm-hmm. was viewed as kind of the spent hulk of a great city. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and that's pr- probably one of the reasons why you hadn't uh, thought much about it. Um, yeah, partly that and partly that I, I either write biography or sociology and I, I hadn't really figured out how to do a city and that really helped me focus on it. But you're so right. I mean, Detroit, when I first got to Detroit to do start the research four and a half years ago, it felt like you were going to you know, to the Rome, to visiting the Colosseum. I mean, literally, Europeans would come to Detroit just to look at the ruins. And it had become a symbol of a city of ruins in many ways by that point. Um, and so people had forgotten this long, great history of what Detroit meant to America. But how did you come to the... Uh, the it, it, what, what struck me about this book, and I, I, gotta, I have to uh, uh, recommend it to everyone, Once in a Great City, a Detroit yes. story. It's a wonderful, wonderful, surprising book. But how did you get to the notion of these 19 months from October of 1962 to May of 1964? Uh, because what was remarkable about it to me is that there it, there was so so many portentous things about mm. there, so much about what was great about Detroit and so much about what was about to go wrong and not just Detroit but the country. That's right. Um, I use the metaphor for almost everything I do, both in journalism and in books, is set my oil rig somewhere and dig as deeply as I can, rather than going wide and shallow. I try to go deep. So the first thought was, okay, what did Detroit give America? Well, obviously automobiles. Um, To me and my generation, the soundtrack of our generation, Motown, um, labor with United Auto Workers and Walter Ruther, its president, really being the heart of the American labor movement, and civil rights during the 1960s. So that helped me focus on a period. Um, 1962 happened to be a, a, a year... In, fall, in the fall of that year, when the Detroit Auto Show introduced cars that sold more than any before in history, when the first Motortown Review left Detroit, taking the music of Motown to the, to the country. And then very early on, as I was looking at that period, I s- stumbled across something that some people knew, but I didn't really pay attention to, which is that Martin Luther King came to Detroit that summer And uh, the largest civil rights rally in history to that point was held in Detroit. And it was in Detroit that he gave the first large public iteration of the I Have a Dream speech. It was was shortly, it was just a couple of months before the Washington, March on Washington, 1963. And completely overshadowed by that. So it was lost to history. Um, So those, those forces really helped me find my place. And then it was just a matter of figuring out where to end it. But I already knew where I would start it. And what that's what I call the center pole of the book would be, which is that walk to freedom. And these things are are, are interwoven uh, in that uh, the uh, the changes and maybe a bit of the decline of labor, uh, the reaction of white working class mm. uh, workers to uh, some of the uh, desegregation efforts yes. and so on. Uh, talk a little bit about that. Well. 
some of it just, I always look for the connections in life. And it, it surprised me the extent to which the, the themes that I was writing about were interwoven. Um, but usually that's true of, of life if you, if you look for it. So you're absolutely right. This was a period when Detroit seemed to be this incandescent star, uh, burning bright, but it was really burning out. And part of that had to do with race, which I consider in every respect the great American dilemma and Detroit as a representative of that. Still today, yes. Um, and so I was seeing both this this moment of of splendor of this walk to freedom where there were no arrests, where everybody was walking arm in arm, where King gave this great immortal speech in Detroit. But also all of the, the elements of trouble were already there. Detroit had a long history of racial difficulties, um, going back to at least to World War II when one of the worst race riots in American history took place in Detroit, a fight over jobs and housing and the the whites from Appalachia against the blacks in, in Detroit, not unlike Chicago in some ways in that respect. Um, and it also had a history of police difficulties with the African-American community, which exploded a month after the Walk to Freedom in 63 once again when a black prostitute was shot in the back by police in Detroit. And all of those issues started bubbling up once more uh, in a very difficult way. Now, I didn't know that incident when I started the book, we should probably know 50 years later, we're still wrestling with these same kinds of issues. Oh, yes. The, what happened to Detroit that summer was not unlike Ferguson or, or Cleveland. There's so many uh, of these places where police-black uh, uh, relationships are very difficult and, and uh, strained. Um, so that, that thread was there. Then you had the fascinating uh, fact that the United Auto Workers, led by Walter Ruther, was the most progressive labor union uh, in the country in terms of civil rights, so that he and his brothers and the the leadership were essentially the bank for the civil rights movement. You know, it was their money uh, primarily that helped get uh, Martin Luther King's followers out of jail in Birmingham that very summer. And yet you could see that that, that, uh, Ruther and the labor leadership were ahead of the rank and file, that many of the Detroit auto workers were living in these neighborhoods that were, uh, you know, ethnically uh, white uh, uh, and and uh, trying to defend themselves against uh, sort of black encroachment, uh, and often with vigilante squads during, you know, the period of the 50s through the early 60s. And, and progressive politicians supported by Ruther, uh, the mayor, uh, uh, yes. uh, Jerry Kavanaugh. Yeah, Kavanaugh was uh, sort of a, uh, a Kennedy acolyte, like David Axelrod. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, yes, and, uh, he you got know, farther. Uh, but he was Irish Catholic, and, yes. and he, he, you know, he, he had all the pretenses of it, where he, you know, he tried to sort of dress his children like he was Joseph Kennedy, and they were the Kennedy boys. Played and, touch football with right, his staff. Yes. Yeah, all of that stuff. But he was basically a progressive Democrat of that era who was elected, really, primarily because of the African-American vote. In reaction to a previous mayor, uh, Louis Mariani, a Republican who had a very reactionary police uh, commissioner, and tensions through that bubbled up and Kavanaugh took advantage of it, was elected. And his key appointment was of a new police commissioner, George Edwards, who I think also sort of been lost to history, but a fascinating character who, who had stepped down from the Michigan Supreme Court to take the job as police commissioner, with the sole hope of improving race relations in Detroit. 
So these efforts, uh, both around police reform and around housing desegregation, and we should say parenthetically that one of the forces for desegregation in Michigan turned out to be Mitt Romney's father, George. Uh, And uh, this was one of the things that unraveled his position in the Republican Party, ultimately his persistent advocacy for housing uh, desegregation. But what I want to get at is... um, was this the beginning of the so-called what would become known as the Reagan Democrats? The the Reagan Democrats were primarily uh, white working class um, who had lived in Detroit. I mean, if you take just sort of the f- classic uh, Greenberg study of Macomb County, which I'm sure you've yes. studied, you know those those people came from Detroit, moved out to the suburbs of Macomb County, and uh, after fighting. Uh, you know, left Detroit to to avoid to avoid integration. racial integration exactly both in the schools and in and in the communities, and as I said, I think Ruther was ahead of his rank and file, and that really did those tensions uh, in that era are playing out even today in so many different ways. But are the Reagan Democrats of that day the Trump Republicans? Of, some of, of them probably are. Yeah, some of them, to be honest, maybe have been. You know, you always, one of the great questions that I'm sure you've dealt with over decades is why do people vote against their own self-interests? Yes, um, what's the matter so, with cancer? Right. So some of them probably have been so defeated by um, the Republican governors of their states, whether it's Michigan or Wisconsin, that some of them probably came back. But but a lot of them didn't, and they're just completely alienated in our. Yeah, and and, and I'm and and it may not be that it's those people. It's 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 their their their, their parallel their their right. their corollary the next generation the, the next gener yeah. the next generation of them. You know, one of the interesting great stuff on Motown, and mm-hmm. I love Motown being a, a yeah. guy that age, and we sure. all uh, those were the song tracks of our lives. But the thing that really interested me about it was. Um, why? How you described Motown evolving there? I mean, why didn't Motown right. evolve in Chicago or some other uh, Cleveland or some other city? Uh, talk a little about that because there's a particular twist to it that really struck me. Yeah, um, I'm fascinated by creative bursts and why they happen in certain times in certain places. I've lived through that as a as a writer, as a journalist. There was a you know I, you probably experienced it too. There might be a one or two years where things just seemed really alive and bursting and the creative energy around you and all the people around you. So why does that happen on a larger scale? Why did it happen in Detroit? Part of it is just because of the entrepreneurial genius of one family, the Gordy family, led by Barry Gordy Jr., who was the founder of Motown, but also his sisters, who really were instrumental in developing Motown in many ways, his ability to find talent. Part of it is just luck of having this group of incredible singers in proximity. Um, part of it is the great migration from the South, bringing the oral traditions of, of jazz. But a lot of cities have that. Chicago yeah, had Chicago that. Chicago certainly had, had that. They, the a lot of northern cities. So there are two other factors that really struck me. Uh, and they were the geography of, of, of Detroit and the economics of Detroit allowed people to have single-family homes and disposable income, and into those homes came pianos. Uh, there was a piano company in Detroit, Grinnell Brothers, which was the largest manufacturer in the country then, and offered pianos at layaway and cheap prices. And so almost every musician I interviewed talked about the piano in their house. 
And then the final element, which really struck me, were yeah. public school music teachers. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, they were the, the musicians, the artists, all remembered not only their they remember their grade school music teacher, their middle school music teacher, and their senior high music teacher. And one of the most thrilling uh, moments for me in the book, you know, I've I have uh, I've interviewed you know Bill Clinton and Muhammad Ali and Barack Obama and many world famous people, and I have those interviews on tape. But what my favorite might be uh, Martha Reeves of the Vandellas telling me the story of her music teacher in high school, Harry Begian, who taught them the classics, the fundamentals, and plucked her out of the chorus at age 16 to sing an aria from an opera. And we're sitting in a room like this, and all of a sudden she breaks into the <laughs> aria, and it's on my tape, it's, and it was quite special. So I think those factors really helped explain why it happened in The Detroit. reason that struck me so was that uh, we have this uh, debate today about the utility of the arts in the schools, art and right. music, and oftentimes school districts that are strapped for, uh, for money, uh, the first thing they eliminate are art and music programs. And here you had a situation where some of these great musicians of that era in Motown mm -hmm. could trace their experience back to public school teachers who taught them the who taught them how to play absolutely i mean so many decisions in our in our culture are made in, for short-sighted reasons and and counterproductive reasons and so you know maybe well-intentioned well you know i think we should all focus on math and science and technology because that's where the jobs are but so many children need to find something that they care about and that can, you know, that's often the arts. You know, it's music and the other arts that, that are the way to really connect with a, with a generation that can be lost otherwise. And so I, I truly believe that. And I know that was definitely a stronger part of American culture in the 50s and 60s than it is today. So the, as I said, there were portents of things to come in your book. You couldn't leave the book without having a greater understanding of, of uh, not just what Detroit was, but what Detroit was to become what what happened in in your view to Detroit and where do you think Detroit is today because we're hearing all this you spent a lot of time there yeah. on this book and you're hearing about this sort of uh, uh, rebirth of the right. city starting from the center city so yeah. so talk I'll, a little I'll start about that. there uh, when I first went to Detroit I, I tell a slightly exaggerated version of it that we stayed at a small bed and breakfast near the Detroit Institute of Arts. And every day I'd walk across Woodward Avenue to the Walter Ruther Library to look at archival stuff and cross Woodward Avenue and think I could stop in the middle of the street and read War and Peace and not get hit by a car. It was literally that desolate. And every time Is I that thought, how you generally cross, reading War and Peace? And <laughs> I didn't have it with me, but I could have, and it would, <laughs> I wouldn't have gotten hit. Uh, I don't know what I was reading then, probably a biography of Walter Ruther. But um, but in any case, I have seen more energy every time I've gone back. And and I've gone back, uh, you know, three or four times for the after the book came out. And I sort of was lucky. It hit a wave. There's a real buzz in Detroit right now. And it, and it, some of it is is, you know, downtown, you know, with rich investors betting on it, trying to make money, but still giving a lot of energy to and restaurants and, you know, Dan Gilbert of Quicken Loans buying a lot of office buildings and other people. Some of it is around the the uh, 
Wayne State University area and the museums. And that's mostly young people. And that's really fascinating because Detroit in some ways is becoming the next Brooklyn, although, you know, uh, although it's Detroit, but, but still a lot of young people are coming there, techies and foodies and artists and creating their own momentum. Of this feeling. is good to know because pretty soon Brooklyn's going to be so expensive. Exactly. People are going to be looking for the next Brooklyn. That's why they're going to Detroit because <laughs> they can get housing there really cheaply. And, and enough, there's enough people coming. I think for the first time, the, the latest census shows people actually coming back into Detroit. But so what happened? Well, some of it, again, is, is familiar to any uh, big industrial city. You know, some of it has to do with, uh, with white flight because of schools and because of, and, and in Detroit in particular, it had to do with urban renewal, which happened here too in bad way. You know, urban renewal had maybe good intentions, but the ripple effects were all negative. Uh, in Detroit, it completely destroyed the traditional black uh, neighborhoods of, of Black Bottom and Paradise Valley. And not only did it destroy them, but it ignored them. So that one of the preachers I interviewed, who was 90 years old when I talked to him, Reverend Nicholas Hood, took out this map that he still had that the city planners showed him when they were going to do the redevelopment of that area. And it didn't even list the black churches. It was that sort of neglectful of what they were destroying. The uh, the operative theory, the facile theory about Detroit is it was a single industry town. And when the auto industry um, declined, uh, sure. that Detroit uh, declined with it. And when uh, and, and in a sense, uh, it's a parable about the modern economy in that when automation came, a lot of jobs were lost to technology. Uh, and those jobs were good middle class jobs that didn't require higher education. Uh, how much of that is, 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 is at play here? Most of it is true. I mean, definitely Detroit was a, essentially a one industry town. The auto industry in 1963, even as it was building more cars than ever, was turning its back on Detroit. More and more factories were leaving the city. But even more so, sort of emotionally, the, the big three automakers were, were leaving, abandoning the city, not really realizing how important it was as the heart of what they represented. And so that was definitely going on at that time. And, and that was unique to Detroit. But but a lot of cities in different ways become reliant too much on one industry and suffer because of it. I call Detroit just an exaggeration of uh, of American uh, urban ills in so many different ways. Um, and that, that was w- one of the key ones. But what fascinated me was that all of this was happening in 1963. This is before the riots of 1967. It's before the city pensions uh, ballooned and created problems. It was before a series of corrupt mayors came along much later. The structural problems were there 50 years ago, before all of that, and 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 they weren't seen because of all of the... I call... I, I like to find tension in, in life uh, when I'm writing, and the tension in this book is between creativity and creation on one hand and decay and destruction on the other, and it was there 50 years ago. You end with uh, President Johnson's uh, speech in which he first used the phrase in a big way, the, the great yeah. society, and talked about eradicating poverty and uh, creating a, a, a future in which everyone had great opportunity and so on. Uh, and it, it, there is a, a kind of sadness to uh, that moment uh, 
juxtaposed with everything else that you describe in the book and everything we know that's happened since. Yes, it's a wistful moment. That's why I chose it for a couple of reasons. One is, uh, you know, the, the, the Washington is sort of the shadow of the book, starting with, with John Kennedy, you know, and how much Detroit meant to the Democratic Party. Uh, you know, the candidates would start their campaigns in Detroit on Labor Day with Walter Ruther at their side in Cadillac Square. It was even in Detroit that Kennedy first gave the first variation of Ask Not What Your Country Can Do For You. You know, it was at that speech. He didn't use Ask Not first, but but it was the same idea. Um, and so uh, LBJ was supposed to come to Detroit for the Detroit Auto Show of 62, didn't make it because of the Cuban Missile Crisis that day. And here he is coming back. Kennedy had first been invited to Michigan to give that address, but he had been assassinated by then. Johnson comes. It was a commencement speech. It was the commencement of speech, May 22, 1964. Johnson arrived in Detroit at the airport, declared it the Herald of Hope for America, took a helicopter to the University of Michigan, and evoked the Great Society. And and what, what struck me was, what a wistful moment, because Johnson... Ruther, all of the people of the book, everybody of that moment didn't know what was coming. But we do. We know what happened over the ensuing decades. Um, and of course, one of the great uh, ideological and uh, political and, and sociological debates of the last 50 years has been why did that happen? Yeah. I, I want to bring you 50, uh, 50 years ahead here or not okay. 50. Let's start with 30. But you, you as I mentioned, you, you've been a great uh, political writer for the Washington Post for years. And um, you were covering Bill Clinton when he ran for president in 1992. Right. And that your book, uh, First in His Classes, is one that emerged from that uh, experience. And uh, just recently, uh, in the last several years, you've written a book about Barack Obama, his formative years, mm-hmm. uh, that uh, end, I think, just after he graduated from college. Um, com- compare those two to me as uh, as people, as historical figures. Uh, how are they the same, if they are at all? Uh-huh. And how do they differ? Well, the, the, the similarities are deep but superficial. And they have to do with biography. Uh, they both came out of nowhere, out of our, southwest Arkansas and Hawaii. They both came out of dysfunctional families uh, without knowing their fathers. Bill Clinton's father was killed in a car accident before he was born. Barack Obama's father left the family immediately after he was born. He only saw him once in his life. Clinton never saw his father. They both had alcoholic stepfathers and other alcohol in the family. And so they had a lot to deal with. And my analysis of the two of them is that they dealt with it in completely different ways. Um, After a period where where Barack Obama, or Barry, was called, sort of rebelled against everything and was just out there sort of angry uh, as a kid and, and or playing basketball and doing, you know, smoking dope and other things that just he wasn't finding himself yet. At age 18, when he left Hawaii for the mainland, he spent like seven or eight years intensely, deeply, psychologically, sociologically, personally, trying to figure himself out. And he had a lot to figure out, even more than Clinton, because Barack Obama was 
was mixed race. A hapa from Hawaii, you know, is an African father and a white mother. In a society where that had so many different layers of of meaning. Um, so he really intensely spent that period from Occidental College for the first two years, Columbia, New York City after Columbia, coming out to Chicago. And I, I, I think that by the time he left Chicago as a community organizer and drove up to, to Harvard for law school, he'd essentially figured it out. And uh, that allowed him to have a what I call an integrated personality. He, you know, I mean, nobody's perfectly, quote-unquote, integrated in terms of, you know, the contradictions of their life. But, but I think it gave him a, a, a sense of, of confidence, of, of self-worth, uh, um, of not uh, needing people as much. Um, and also, Which is unusual in politics. It sure is. And a mission, a real mission. He really wanted to change the world. It's so all of that drove him to the White House, and uh, you know, and and I've always believed that for politicians who are an exaggeration of all of us, their strengths are their weaknesses, and their weaknesses are their strengths. So that's Barack Obama's great strength, but it also got him in trouble in the White House because he didn't, he wasn't as needy. And politicians, well, listen, I, you know, <laughs> I, you and I have talked about this when he was thinking of running for president. And I told him I didn't think he was pathological enough mm. to run. Because I didn't think he had that need for approbation that so drives so many people who run uh, for president. But as we both know, he did have one thing. He was incredibly competitive. And that's what he said. And that's what he said. He said, I don't have all that, but if I get in... I want to win. I'm going to. I'm going to. Yeah. I'm going to play to win. You yeah. know. Yeah. Uh, so what about Bill? So Clinton? So Bill Clinton, okay, came out of that same uh, pathology to a certain extent, and dealt with it completely differently. He didn't try to figure himself out. He just kept moving. He was like a shark in the water. He can't stop. So, he, you know, whatever was coming at him, he'd keep going. Uh, he developed this constant cycle of loss and recovery in his life, um, which became apparent to me fairly early on as I was researching it. So that uh, when, when, he, when he was down, he would find his way up. And when he was up, he'd do something to get in trouble again. I could see that long before the impeachment and Monica Lewinsky, that cycle. But it, it really strengthened him. And he had a really, uh, pathological is not too strong of a word. He, Clinton really needs people so much that from an early age, his friends would tell me that, that he'd, call, he'd call up his best friend in, in Hot Springs, Arkansas, say, come on over. And the the friend would come over and just watch Clinton do a crossword puzzle. He couldn't stand to be alone. You know, he had to have people around him. He had to have affirmation. He had to have people like him, especially strangers. Um, and that and that combination of neediness and an ability to recover from anything gave him this also incredible political strength that got him to the White House. Who else would have survived Jennifer Flowers and all the other things that were coming at him in 92? He did, and I knew he would. Um, and then uh, got him in trouble in the White House, and out of trouble and in trouble and out of trouble. I mean, that's the cycle of Bill Clinton. So uh, Barack Obama certainly has a lot of nuance and um, uh, subtlety and contradiction in his life, but it's more of a straight piece than, than, than Clinton going up. And, and you're planning another volume on him, is that right? 
I probably will do another one on both of them, actually. Yes, but definitely. I, I, I'm not Robert Caro. I didn't want to devote my life to either of them. I have too many other uh, things I love to write about. Um, but my plan is, and I've, you know, I've done, I, I did a, a lot of significant reporting, even though I was doing the first book, because I didn't, wasn't sure where I was going to end it. But yes, I, I, I would say that five years after the Obama presidency, there might be enough material that I only want to write one more and I want to make sure it lasts for history. I, you know, that's, of course, there will be thousands of books about President Obama. Including his own. Including his own, which will be, you know, really fascinating. And I can't, I don't want to compete with that. I'm not, that's not what I'm doing. But, but I do want to write a book that, that lends some, adds something to the discussion and the understanding of it. Of yeah, years. I was very, for a variety of reasons, but I was very eager to write my book, my memoir, well clear of any book that he wrote because I know how good his book is going to be, and yeah. I don't want to be in that. Right? No, you don't in, want to be in that, in that gale force wind. Uh, so, be, uh, just uh, to wrap this yeah. piece up, I, what are, what are the leadership implications of those personality traits? Um, my feeling is that for Bill Clinton, that meant that he was too prone to go for short term gain. And um, so that there was less of a lasting impact in his presidency than there could have been. But again, you know, I've, over the many decades, I've heard people lament, oh, if only about Bill Clinton, if only he hadn't had those other attribute, you know, uh, negative aspects to him, he could have been great. But I always say you can't separate them. People are, are, are all of those things. And what drive them one way drives them in another. So, but I think that Bill Clinton in the, in the long run, um, didn't accomplish as much as he might have because of his his need for short-term affirmation. And Barack Obama accomplished more, in my opinion, and it's largely because of his peculiar ability to to go by his own time. Yeah, um, I, I would say that he, more than most people that I've ever worked with, has the ability to look long and to to take the beating in the short term to... It's, but I think it's also it's also true that it was hard for him to bring a whole lot of people along with him at times because that's not the way most politicians think. No, it's not. And he's not very tolerant of, of people who don't. Right, and that didn't help him at all. Right. And you know, he so he could have accomplished more too. But again, could have, but he wouldn't have been the same. You know, yeah. so you, I, I, I don't really believe in that sort of argument about people. I'm they, hopelessly biased on the subject <laughs> of what he accomplished because I think given where he came into office, he's accomplished a When great you look thing. at where he came into office, when you look at what he had to encounter, I, I'm sure that, you know, of course, history, who knows who writes history, but I think history, I thought you do. Well, <laughs> Isn't that what we're doing here? <laughs> 50 years from now, uh, he's going to look completely different than he than he does in the the heat of this mad moment so i'd be remiss if i didn't say because there's a current clinton you know running for president and you know her very well uh where what's your sense of hillary clinton and where does she fit in in this uh what's her personality type uh she is more like obama than than her husband but not quite uh she's uh she's very smart she's very competent um She's, uh, I would say that when Bill Clinton and Hillary met, they, they realized that they shared so much in terms of what they 
cared about and what they wanted to accomplish, the ambition and, and, and ideas. Um, and they got places together that they might not have gotten to apart. But Hillary, in the long run, suffered from that much more than he did in two ways. One is that she, she uh, became uh, uh, not codependent, but very protective of him in a lot of ways, and that created this incrustation of defensiveness um, that is unhealthy. I mean, all politicians get it because they're attacked constantly. I understand that they have to have these shields, but, but there's a sense that, that she's not open, and that doesn't help her. Um, is it a sense or is it true? It's true. It's true, and it's developed over 30 years of protecting him, I would say. I don't think it's inherently part of her, necessarily. So she has that on one side, and on the other side, she has an unfair comparison with him as a politician. She's not as good, you know? I mean, she, she's better at some things, but not at going out and, and wowing, walking into a room and making everybody love yeah. her, yeah. you know, like he could do. Yeah. No, I, I think I always say that you've got to, if you're working for a candidate or a politician, you want to maximize their strength and minimize their weakness. She's not a great stump speaker. She's not a great glad hander. But we saw her strengths. We saw it in the debates. We, in the debate, we saw it in those hearings. Uh, we, you see it when she's talking about substantive issues. Probably that's her venue. Yeah, I, I get in trouble sometimes for saying this. Because, you know, the right wing can take anything you say and turn it to. <laughs> but I once called her a phony phony. And I meant that as a compliment. I meant that she shouldn't try to be the actor that he's good at being. If she's just herself, she's much better off. Right. So they shorten your quote to just one phony. Is, <laughs> right. that, what the, is that what happened? So, you know, one of the reasons I'm such a, a fan of, of yours is that we have led somewhat parallel mm. lives. I was a political reporter right. before I became consultant. I'm a student of, of, of history and very interested in the period of history that you're interested uh -huh. in. Uh, how has the coverage of campaigns changed uh, since you're still in it? I'm yeah. out of it, long well, out of it. Uh, you're, you're kind of on the it. fringes of it. <laughs> yeah. The Washington Post calls you an associate editor. That qualifies you to be in it. <laughs> uh, and I know you're writing yeah. long profile pieces, but you're certainly observing and reading and what, what, how has coverage of campaigns changed, and uh, uh, is all of it for the worse, or is some of it for the better? It's both, I would say. I mean, you know, back when I started, it was a very uh, small club of, of newspapers, magazines, uh, and television journalists uh, who sort of defined— What was the first presidential race you covered? Uh, it was Jimmy Carter in 76. I was the national political writer for the Trenton Times— <laughs> uh, uh, which the Washington Post had just bought. That's how I got to the Washington Post. It was their farm club. I was that was there, shrewd of you. I was there for yeah. two years, and they brought me up to the big leagues. But So I've covered every campaign since 1976 in one way or another. And, you know, it was the boys on the bus then. It was really – it was all male, first of all. It was very limited. Um, but there were rules to the game, which for the most part were – probably pretty good um and those rules are completely gone now and and there was there was you well, know what, what were they i mean I, I i hear you because yeah. i was there but what were they well uh there were the rules were that certain things were considered important to understanding someone's what someone would be like if they were president certain things weren't 
So that goes both ways. You know, I mean, obviously, in, in, in the era going back to Jack Kennedy and, and earlier, sex lives had no, you know, they weren't reported on. Uh, that started. And one of your old editors, Ben Bradley, was one of Jack Kennedy's great friends. Absolutely. Uh, that started change in '84. I was I was writing about Gary Hart. I didn't write those stories, but uh, I saw that happen. Um, so that was one of the changes. And then, but then mostly it's just this uh, complete disintegration of institutions. Institutions in American life aren't what they used to be, and so why wouldn't that also be true of politics and journalism? And it is. And so that uh, disintegration has led to a thousand voices, some of them more interesting, uh, some of them shut out before. Uh, certainly there are more women and African-Americans and, and all kinds of voices that are that you need to hear that are now have voice. Um, but you also have this cacophony. And, and, and there's uh, uh, there are two things that really upset me. One is that you have a, a tilted playing field now where you still have what is disparagingly referred to as mainstream media, trying to search for the truth. Really, not with a, you know, any reporter knows the political agenda is not there. The agenda is to try to get a good story. And to say that that Ben Carson is being treated any differently than Barack Obama right. or Bill Clinton, right. it was preposterous. Though it plays uh, probably for, for, with his base. Yes, exactly. But for better or worse, sometimes the press... Uh, goes off on tangents and isn't really focusing on what's important or, or relevant. But certainly someone's resume is the first thing that any reporter checks on, you know, whether it's real or not. Um, so, but, 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 so you have the mainstream media trying to, trying to find the truth, and you have this other media that's completely uninterested in that. And it creates this imbalance uh, because that other media is basically right-wing. So there's an imbalance there, and there's a pressure to move uh, toward the left. And, and, but, and I understand that. Um, you mean in reaction? In reaction, in so many ways, but it creates dangerous. Once you start sacrificing a search for the truth, you've lost everything. Your dad was a longtime journalist. You're a second-generation journalist. Right. You're telling me now your kids are writers, yeah. which is great. Um, what would your dad say about uh, – he was an editor at the Capital Times mm. in, uh, in Madison for years. I was up there. He's a lionized figure. <laughs> what would he say about uh, the – because one of the things that seems to be absent – I grew up with editors, you know. Right. And those editors were really mentors, and they were a stern taskmasters. And if my story was inadequate, it wouldn't get in the newspaper. And that's how I learned how to be a reporter. I don't see that layer – as prominent, and certainly not in uh, uh, in some of the uh, reporting that streams out into the internet today. Oh yeah, no, there's uh, there's so much pressure to to put something out there. You know, it's a 24 hour news cycle. Uh, you know, the cliche is true. Meaning moment to moment, moment to moment, and so and and there's always pressure to be first, and more pressure to be first than to be right. Um, generally speaking, that's not entirely true. I mean, I still. I'm a strong defender of of the Washington Post and the New York Times. Should be there paying you, man. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I, I know the editors there are really good, and there still is that. But even at, even at a place like the Post, uh, 
you know, the filters for a story that's going on the web right away are less than they used to be. And that's that's always dangerous. And so mistakes can that could have been prevented are made. Uh, Politico, you know, has made mistakes pushing certain parts of the Ben Carson story that w- would have easily been, you know, right. f- fixed. Um, so all of that... Uh, but, but but you know it's so much larger than just journalism right now. There's just the whole political culture, um, which I, uh, you know, I've sort of in one sense made my living in it, but I've never wanted to be completely in it because parts of it I find repellent, <laughs> um, and uh, and I just think it's it's gotten you know I mean, when you study history you see well of course going back to Jefferson and everything you know there there are these there's kinds coarseness. of there's coarseness there through every generation and certainly through but the, the megaphone is much different now it is it is and it and it's um it's uh i don't i'm not quite sure where it's going i've always what i tell young journalists or people who ask about it is the the platform really isn't the key thing you know however however you get your news or however you write your story newspapers as as physical entities might be gone after our generation um, who knows how people will get their information, but there are only two things that really matter. One is the human need to understand themselves through story, and I think that will always be true, however those stories are told. And the second is the need for uh, people actually going out and searching for what really happened, for the truth. Uh, and that's the one that's more endangered, I think, by the technology. Well, you, my friend, are one of the great storytellers of our time, and I really appreciate you being with us today. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files. For more podcasts like this, subscribe to The Axe Files on iTunes. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.